Matthew chapter 22, if you'll join me there. We have lots to cover this morning. Uh, Matthew 22, I hope I have not prepared in such a way as to overbake the ham, um, but and I, you'll see it, it's going to have some technical things to it, uh, but I think that's, I hope that's the direction the Lord has led, and he's going to have to do the teaching this morning in these things. Uh, I want it to be the right blend. Uh, Matthew 22, here's the scene. I'm going to do a very brief introduction. It's the Passion Week of the Lord. It's Passover. Uh, he will be dying in just a couple of days. He'll be put on the cross two to three days from this point. We're calling this the third day of the Passion Week. Day one is the triumphal entry. Day two, he cleanses the temple. Day three, he is teaching again in the temple. He's been asked, where, where do you think you get your authority from? He has then, he used that to springboard into three parables that had a very stinging message for the Jewish leaders that frankly are his enemies. They are hunting for ways to put him to death. They're hunting for justified reasons. They have their mind made up what they want to do. They just need some good reasons that will hold up in court. And then they begin to examine him after they know that, that they are the brunt of his three parables that he told. Um, then they start asking a question. These two groups, first the Pharisees try to challenge him with a question about taxes. Should the Jews pay the tax to Caesar? Their whole goal is that he would say something that would get him in trouble with Rome. He doesn't fall for it, gives the classic answer, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. They're defeated. Here come the Sadducees. And the Sadducees have, they think, a brilliant question, how to disprove the resurrection. Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees do not. They're political enemies, but they both agree that they want to do away with Jesus. And so the Sadducees present what they think is a brilliant question. If a woman has been married to seven men on earth, whose, whose wife will she be in eternity? And Jesus says, they think they're showing the absurdity of the resurrection. Jesus points out, you're wrong because you don't know the scripture. You don't know the power of God. And in essence, I think what we saw was he was also implicitly saying you're wrong because you just assume the next life is like this life. So you're wrong. And he disproves how that we are not married in the next life. And he answered their question so thoroughly that now it brings up verse 34. Here we go. We're going to read 34 to 40. And then we'll be noticing three things from our text this morning. Go ahead and tell you. When we get there, the first point is going to be two-thirds of the message, okay? So when you feel like, well, we've got two points to go, I'm just telling you the first point is really the crux of the message. Verse 34. So Pharisees came about taxes. That didn't work. Tried to entangle him, trip him up. Sadducees come, try to trip him up, make him look foolish over the resurrection. He makes them look foolish. He proves the resurrection from the books of Moses that they actually believed in. In the book of Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Now here come the Pharisees again. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced. The idea of silence there. He had literally muzzled them. The Sadducees had nothing to say when Jesus used Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 to prove the resurrection. So thoroughly were they defeated. He had muzzled them. They could not rebuff what he had said. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Let me read between the lines. It was win-win and lose-lose for the Pharisees. It's a win that Jesus defeated the, the, the Sadducees over the resurrection. But really, they're wanting to take down Jesus. It's like, hey, thanks for taking them down. But really, our goal is to take you down. So they, the Pharisees, at the end of verse 34, they gathered together. Again, here's their plan. I almost wonder, is the question they're going to present here, is it the runner-up to the first question? 
Remember they got together and they thought, what can we ask to trip him up? They came up with a question about taxes. Is this the runner-up question that now it's time to present? So here they go. Round two for them. Round three overall. Verse 35. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer. Apparently this is pointed out so that we get the idea that this is not one of their disciples that they sent. Like the first question, this is one of the higher-up big dogs. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I'm not going to take time to read Mark. This man... As verse 35 says, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. So we know Matthew tells us his desire is to test, no doubt to trip up Jesus. But if you bring in Mark and see the interaction of the Lord, there is a respect of this man for Jesus. He's apparently very impressed with how Jesus has been answering everything. He's curious. I really want to know your answer now. It's great if it tests him and traps him, trips, trips him up. But this man really does want to know Jesus, his answer. And Jesus ends up having an exchange with this man that Jesus says some complimentary things that is not in Matthew. You would see it in Mark. So here's the question. This lawyer of the Pharisees asked him to test him. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's the burning question. Which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, here it is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus inserts with all your mind. Over in Mark you'll see that he says, With all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So now verse 38 Jesus says, this is the great and first commandment. This is the first of importance. Literally in Mark, you'll find the word, what's the most important? What's the greatest? What's the top one? Jesus says that it's, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there as he's wont to do. He's going to give two for the price of one. While we're answering this, Jesus says, 39... A second, I'm going to give you a second. That's the great one. A second is like it. In other words, this is very, very close. But it is second. Look at verse 39. I want you to really focus on it. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. Glance back up to verse 37. Look up there again. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. That's number one. Number two, a second, you shall love your neighbor. Glance back up to 37. You shall, number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You already starting to see that? You love God this way. You love your neighbor this way. It's second. It's not first. That's first. Love God all of this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that already should start, start telling us where's our love of ourself Where should it be ranked? You see where it's put in the rank. And then verse 40 wraps it up. Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They're all depending on these are the two. I answered your question. You want to know what's the great one? I gave it, but while I'm at it, I'm giving you a second one. So let's notice number one this morning. We'll be here a little while on this point. God, is very simple points, our, our points are very evident from the text. God commands us to love him. God, hear it, 
commands us to love him. Say it one more time. God commands us to love him. They come to Jesus and this Pharisee who's a lawyer says, what is the great? What's the first? What's the greatest of all the commandments? At this point, the rabbis and scribes had already deciphered and decoded and documented and formulated the law. You with me? Watch. They'd already searched it over and they've documented it down to 613 laws. I cannot tell you if that's true or not. I've never documented, I've not read the Old Testament to know are there 613. Theologians tell us there are 613 laws. Further, they broke them down this way. There's 248 mandates. Do this. There's 365 prohibitions. Don't do this. 248, do these things. 365, don't do these things. If you're a Jew in that day and you do these 613 things, then you get to go to heaven. You have earned your way to heaven. The problem is no one has ever done those 613 things, not even close. You have to do it every moment of every day of your whole life. Always do these 248 things and never do these 365 things and you'll be good. Furthermore, they not only broke it down into 613, 248, 365, they also put those into categories. You have lighter laws and weightier laws. Lighter and weightier. They come to Jesus. This is a burning question. They debate it all the time in their schools. Which is the greatest? Did you notice with me upon the first reading something that kind of struck my attention? Jesus actually lets the question stand. Jesus doesn't say, what kind of stupid question is that? That's not not what he does. He doesn't say, the greatest command, these are the commands of God. What are you talking about? They're all important. They're equally. Jesus does not do that. He goes along with the question and acknowledges it's a good question. He gives an answer along the lines of the question. The hints were already there for them. Now, man has to be careful where we start putting lighter and weightier. But let's just be honest. If you did nothing but read the Old Testament and did not have Jesus' answer here, you'd have to acknowledge some laws have harsher punishments if they are broken. That's a hint. What's the weightiest? What's the greatest? What's the most important one? There's hints. There are differences. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not, yes, there are differences in the law. Let me give you, let me remind you of three of the Ten Commandments. Ready? Here's three. You shall keep the Sabbath. So the Jews are told, honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Here's another one. Don't kill. Don't kill people. Here's another one. Don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies. Now watch. They're to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But if you read the Bible, you recognize that there are situations that God made allowances to break the Sabbath laws. Not very often, but in this phrase, when the ox falls in the ditch. In other words, if to be humane, be it an animal or a person, you may have to break the law on the Sabbath. And then you need to go through some ritual cleansing. We're told, don't take human life. And yet the same Bible says there are instances of sanctioned times where we take human life. Just cause war. Execution, where the government carries out capital punishment. Self-defense. So we're starting to see, okay, wait, there are times that you break that law. Here's one. Don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies. And yet, as I alluded to, I think in the last week or two, remember the Hebrew midwives are told by the Egyptian king in Exodus chapter 1, kill all the baby Jews, the boys that are born, let the girls live. But when you midwives are delivering these little Jewish baby boys, kill them. And the Hebrew midwives tell the the king of Egypt, these Hebrew women are strong. They're not like like the, the Egyptian woman. They're having these babies before we ever get there. They straight up lied. 
I want to read to you. Let me find it. I think I put a mark there. Listen to what Exodus 1.20. So God dealt well with the midwives. They lied. Don't lie. They lied. God dealt well. Who's the obvious one in the book of Joshua that we're thinking of? What's her name? She straight up lied. What's her name? Rahab. She knows she's hiding two Jewish spies up on her roof. Here come the people of Jericho wanting to know where are those two men. We think they're here. And she like, oh, I don't know where they're at. Straight up lying. She gets blessed for that. Now, I'm not saying go out and I, I think I've got a pretty good situation. You know, it's going to get me in trouble. This is a good time to tell a lie. No, no, no. This is saving lives. It's time to tell a lie. Now, I'm not. I don't get to decide that. All I know is we see these patterns. Jesus is asked, which is the greatest? How does he answer? There's this thing called the Shema among the Jews. It's, it's further than this, but we'll not turn there. But Jesus answers with Deuteronomy chapter 6. Mark includes verse 4. Matthew picks up verse 5. The Shema, you say, what is that? This is some, Jesus says, you want to know the great commandment? You devout Jews, you, you recite this twice a day already. You're on the right track. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, all of your strength. And Jesus says, all of your mind. So he says, you're already on it. And he, talks, he brings in this passage. Now, here's where we got to think. Because this is where we're going to start getting a little bit technical. Look at verse 37. So kind of look at it. Hopefully you got your Bibles open. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God. What He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. The Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. New Testament here is written in what language? Greek. So Jesus is giving, he's pulling a truth about love. We turn to Deuteronomy, we see love. We come in Matthew chapter 22, we see the word love, love, love. He's taking this concept written in Hebrew. He's using the language of the day, which we know is the Greek language. And you guys know as well as I do, this is not new. I'm not the first. I'm the 500 millionth person to share this. The Greeks had multiple words for love at Jesus' disposal. Notice that he does not use the word eros, which has to do with physical enjoyment. Typically the body, we get our word erotic from that. He doesn't use that word for love. He doesn't even use the word phileo, which we get our word Philadelphia. He doesn't say, you shall phileo, you shall have affection, brotherly, familial affection for God. No, what word does he use? You guys tell me he uses the word agape. So what is agape? Write this down in your notes. Jesus' use of agape, you shall agape. He's he's trying to get across the idea of Deuteronomy 6. Jesus' use of agape points out a deeply committed love of the will. This is a deeply committed love of the will. that has. This love has determined, I will do what is best for the object of my love. We are called to love the Lord our God with this deep agape. I am choosing, I'm making a choice. Here's the idea. Whether the feelings are there or not, I will Make choices. I will decide. My actions will fall in line. I want the best for the object of my love. We're supposed to have this deep, abiding, committed, willful love of God. And a lot of people will stop right there. And here's where I'm going to probably overbake the ham. I'm going to drill, out, I'm going to drill this in. Is that the whole story? Okay. Whether we have these warm feelings toward God or not, I'm to be committed to the Lord. 
and to be devoted all life long, no matter what. Yes, I choose to love the Lord. That's the love he has toward us. There's no warm feelings toward us in our sin. So he has chosen to do what's best for me, and I will choose to take my life and use it to do what is best for God. That's the love. Okay, yeah, God wants that. But notice verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall agape the Lord, Lord your God. But he adds this whole other thing. With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. What's he saying? I want all of that over there and I want a whole lot more. What's the Lord saying? By this phrase, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind... Now, if you came today saying, boy, I am really intrigued. I can't wait to hear Jeff get up and dissect the difference between the heart and the soul and the mind. Yeah, you're out of luck. I'm not going to do that this morning. That is not the point of the passage. It wasn't the point of the passage when I read this multiple times. It wasn't the point of any of the seven, eight people that I read after. Not one of them dove into there. If you're taking notes, write this thought down. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. What is the Lord doing there? He's demanding, yes, agape love. But he's bringing in these overlapping categories so that the main dynamic we're to take away this morning is this. We are demanded to love our God. Our love for God is to include our entire core, our entire being, our entire soul. In other words, there's no part of my soul, no part of my mind that doesn't love God, no part of my soul that doesn't love God, no part of my heart, my core being the real me, no part of it is resolved. Reserved. What is he calling for? He's calling, yes, for a love of our whole mind, a love of our whole will, and a love of our emotions. So we can't just dig in roots and say, we got this agape, love of the will. So it has nothing to do with love of the emotions. God's like, I want all of that, and I want all of that. I don't want it either, or I want both. I want the whole thing. I want you to love me with everything in you, will Affection. I want your love to exude affection. Here, listen. This is the command of God. You are to love him with your will. You are to love him with affection. You are to love him with great delight. Do it. We can stop right there, right? Go and love him with great delight and great affection and tremendous, committed, dedicated will. Let's go do it. Now, some people hear that. Let's take a quick note so I don't forget it. God calls for our love to be both simultaneously volitional, our will, and emotional. He's calling for, because, yes, he uses agape, but he connects this idea. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, both volitional and emotional, equally. He wants it all. This volition that leads to action, that you will see this. You will see the love of God coming out in your life. And this emotion that you may or may not see. God wants both at the same time. Some people hear that and here's what they think. Uh, Jeff, I don't know. And it goes like this. Piper summed this up in a book I read years and years ago. And I revisited it. And so I'm encapsulating that, not quoting. The thought goes like this. Jeff, I don't think that really means the love of the emotions and affection. God doesn't command Emotions. It ain't like you can say, love me, and we don't have it, but we can make choices. So God's calling for choices in our will and devotion. Well, here's the problem, as Piper writes, quote, 
Jesus does command the feelings. So we cannot think, well, God doesn't really. He knows we either have it or we don't. He can't just command us to have feelings. He does. Jesus does command the feelings. He writes, he demands our emotions to be one way and not another. Now hang with me. He illustrates that. In Luke, I forget the exact passage, people are told, his disciples come back, they're all excited that the demons are subject to them. And Jesus says, rejoice not that the demons and devils are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are what? Rejoice that your... You know what he just told them? Rejoice! Have great joy! Do you know what he told those disciples is true of many of us in this room? My name is written in heaven. Jesus says, have great joy that your name is written in heaven. Do it right now. Yes! My name... Have it. You say, but Jeff, I'm in a hard time. I'm being persecuted at work. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 12, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's verse 10. For doing the right thing, you're persecuted. You know what the Lord says? Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Great. Keep your, But this bad is happening. That's not fun. I'm not having a lot of joy. Rejoice anyway. He does command the feelings. Here's one. Don't fear people. But they could kill my body. True. That person, that group, they're getting ready to kill us. Jesus, here's, this may come. Don't fear them. Don't even give them the satisfaction of being afraid. He says, you fear him who has the power to destroy body and soul. Don't fear them. You fear him. Here's one. This is Luke chapter 9. Do not be ashamed of him. Don't even feel shame. Now listen. Don't be obnoxious, obnoxious at work. Don't be obnoxious at school. But don't ever feel shame. Jesus said, shame is an emotion. Don't feel it over Jesus. Matthew 18, verse number 35. Jesus tells us, forgive people. This is a command. Forgive. But he puts this little tag on the end. Watch. From our heart. Unless we forgive. Like literally release bitterness, anger, and resentment. Those emotions, Jesus commands us, let those go, forgive from the heart. And I see your heart. Don't just like, yes, I forgave you. I told you, I forgive you. Don't be that way. Literally release the debt. So he does command the emotions. I have two more quotes from Piper, and they're they're a little weighty. They're really weighty. I've read this literally 50 times, and you only get to hear it about twice, Okay. Here he goes. It's short. Love the Lord your God. That's the command. We're dissecting. What are we called to do? Piper writes, quote, Jesus' demand that we love him may involve more than deep feelings. And he's going to give us four categories of deep feelings. Be listening for the feeling words. Jesus' demand that we love him may involve more than deep feelings of admiration for his attributes. You got it? Admiration, the attributes of God. It may involve more than deep feelings of admiration for the attributes of God. And enjoyment of his fellowship. It may involve more than deep feelings of admiration for his attributes and enjoyment of his fellowship and 
attraction to his presence and affection for his kinship, but it does not involve less. You say, well, Jeff, you read that like it's important. You kind of lost me. It's, it's, it's 11, 20-something. All right, could you read that one more time? Here it is again. Jesus' demand that we love him may involve more than deep feelings of admiration for his attributes and enjoyment of his fellowship and attraction to his presence and affection for his kinship, but it does not involve less. does not involve less than that. What he's, he's admitting, yes, agape calls for more than that, but don't you get so caught up in the word agape and this commitment that you leave all this off because God's like, I want that and I want, did you catch the emotion words? Admiration, enjoyment, attraction, affection. See, most of us when we were dating and we get married, do you remember when we had that admiration of attributes and we talked about it? It's usually in the eros, enjoyment of the body. What were we doing? Your hair is just like so beautiful. Oh, go on. Go on. <laughs> and your eyes, and your mouth, your smile, and your voice, and your figure, and your personality, and your this, and that, and that. We're just gush about their attributes. Do you seriously think that God's like, boy, you have a lot of admiration, a lot of attraction going on down there, but I don't need that toward me. God's like, yeah, that's normal. You have that toward them. You're falling in love with them. You better have that toward me. I want that. We have this phileo. We love Father. We have affection for, I do. I have affection for father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter. I have all six of those. I have great affection. Great affection for spouse. That is normal. But Jesus comes along and says, our affection for them as compared to our affection for God, should make our affection for them literally look like hatred. God's like, all of that is good. That's normal. I want that way, way more. You understand? He's calling for everything. I want the whole life. I want the whole inner being. I want the, I want the whole mind. I want the whole soul. I want the core. I want everything. I want your will. I want it all. Here's what I find sometimes in our circles that care about theology, we get real content on good theology. Hang with me. Good theology. Gratitude. Jeff, that's, a, that's an emotion. I know my blessings come from God, and I have gratitude for those blessings, and I am committed. I am committed. I'm in it for the long haul. I've come through a lot of struggle, and I'm going to die believing in Jesus. That's great. He wants that, and he wants a whole lot more. Don't ever be satisfied with good theology and commitment and some gratitude. Because he wants admiration, enjoyment, attraction, and affection to go with it. I start putting that all together and I come up with a list. And this is, what, this is one of the main parts of our first. We need to hit this list quickly. You ready? So this God's command to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. What is it? If we were to try to put a... Short list together, a very inadequate list. I think we could put at least these six things. What's God calling for us? Let's compare ourselves as we're going through the list. Number one, write this down. God is calling our love to be the love of a will that is determined to glorify God. A will absolutely determined. Here's what we find out. When we love someone, we want them to be honored. We want them to be exalted. 
Something's wrong if I love someone and I'm angry that they're exalted and honored. This, this love that God is calling for, Grace View, is that we love the Lord so much, we will give our very lives to see that He is exalted and honored. We want Him exalted. We want Him to be praised. Secondly, write this down. It is a love that has a will. Again, we're going to make choices to do this. A love that has a will that is determined to obey God's commandments. This is what he's calling for. I want, I want you to love me so much that when you find out I call for something, you absolutely will do it. You will do it. In other words, God, I want you. I love you so much. I want to see you exalted. I want to see you glorified. And I want you to be pleased. God, I want you to be pleased with me. So when I find out you like something, I'm going to do it. Hold your spot here. Flip over 1 John. 1 John's going to be key today. We're going to be referring to it like two or three more times. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to just, man, we're going to fight the temptation. We're just going to pull a verse and make a point. You ready? So what is love? It's a will that is determined to obey God's commands. Where do we get this idea? 1 John 5 verse 3. For this is the love of God. We cannot get around this. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. What is the love of God? Now, guys, here's what's tricky. John is not actually saying, this is important, that commandment keeping is love. What he's saying is that when love is present, commandment keeping is always present. When love is where it ought to be, commandment keeping is there. Why am I emphasizing this? Because it is possible to have commandment keeping and not have love. Watch. I'm going to put two people up here. Imagine you got to use your imagination. Here's the law person. They go through life. They come to church. They read their Bible. They're very in tune. They want to know what God expects. And they put it on the to-do list. And they go through life trying to keep and live up to all the things that they find out the Bible calls for. It's a lot of people sitting here this morning. It's some folks watching online right now. This is the law person. Over here is the love person. They too are very interested in the things that God loves and, and dislikes. But for very different reason. So here's the thing. Over here is the performance person. And here's the grace person. What's Unique is that both will end up doing the same things. They'll do the same things. But there's a difference. Both are reading their Bible. Both are spending time in prayer, make it important. Both are going to church. Both are giving financially and of their resources to the Lord. Both are serving God. But the one that has love has something that the other one doesn't. It's in verse number 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Yes, so are they. But his commandments are not burdensome. Love, in this person's life, has taken the weight out of the to-do list. It's taken the burden and the work out of it. They do it because they want to. There are people here this morning, and they kind of literally leave every week kind of thinking, there, I did that. And yet there's others here like, what? I wouldn't miss it for the world. I love being here. I love doing this. I love singing together. I love studying the Word of God. What's going to happen today? Two very different people. Spent longer on that than I thought. Write this one down. What is this love we're being called toward? Here's one. A desire to do acts of service for God. That's what he wants. He wants a love that is so real, so genuine. Here's how I thought of that. Many of us are parents. I've been there. 
you either discover or you go hunting. Bottom line, you find the perfect thing. Your kid is going to just flip their lid, and you can't wait till Christmas. They think they're excited about Christmas. I, you want to give it to them early. Can I give it to them? No, honey. Remember, this is, we're not going to have anything for Christmas. No, but they just, I want them to have it right now. What if we love God? God, I just want to do something for you. I love you so much. I just want to give you stuff. Do you give? When you give, do you feel like, there, I did something. God surely made note of all that I give. Or is it, God, I love getting to do this for you. I love giving you that. Are you excited for it? Write this one. This love calls for an appetite to learn about him in his written word. I mean, an appetite. I just want to learn about God. Do we have that? This is the love that's being called for. It's no secret. I love Tar Heel basketball, right? I love North Carolina basketball, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some of you love your sports team. You know what that means? You know how it shows itself? When we love something like that, we want to know all about it. We, want to, we, we look at the schedule, and we project wins and losses. I'm describing some of you. Some of you, literally, you have your sports team. We're looking at the schedule. We're watching the games. If we can't actually watch it live, we're DVRing the games. We want to go to the games. And if you're real nuts, oh, and wacko, you're checking recruiting for next year and the year after that. I, I love them. I just want to know more and more. And you read articles. That's the love God wants. God, I just, I just want to know. What are you like? This is what he calls for. Next, a desire to spend time with God. A desire, just, God, I just want to be in your presence. This is what he's calling for. I want everything. I want the whole you. A great desire to spend time in God's presence, which ultimately leads to this other, and I hope we're getting a balanced view of what this greatest, highest demand of all. Here's one. A great, God wants a kind of love that has great delight in God. And great affection for God. Hear me. Great delight in God. Great affection for God. That regularly results in our speaking words of adoration to God. Such great delight in God. Great affection for God. These emotions. So much so that, man, we're often found just talking to God like, Lord... You know what I love about you, God? I love that you are eternal and that you're creative and that you're all-powerful and that you're everywhere present and that you're holy and that you're sovereign. Do you ever just catch yourself like, God, these are the things that I love about you? Because you're delighting in him. We love food. I love food. I love some food more than I love other food. Think with me. What do we do when we love food? We end up eating it. Do you ever, do you guys, you do, I know you do. Do you ever just like, Delight in it. This, you delight. You anticipate it. You anticipate it. You long for it. You desire it. When you get it, you enjoy it. And then you say it. Right? You say it. You long for it. I mean, guys, it comes out. I'm telling you. You're like me. We're doing what? Yeah, we're having. What is that? We're having that. Yes. Sweet. We're having that. We're going where? Oh, yes. I'm getting the. And your favorite thing. And as you're eating, I'm telling you, you do this sometimes. You don't even know it. Like, mm, mm, mm. What, what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. Mm. Wow. Wow. That was awesome. This is what we do. Why? Because we love food. We love that, that food. Love it. Delight in it. It's almost like we have affection for it. 
Love it. Enjoy it. And it comes out. Write this thought. I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm trying to get us to evaluate ourselves. Here's the thought. We can fake a heart that loves God. We can fake it, but we can't hide it. We can fake. And by the way, don't fake. Please don't hear what I'm about to say and fake it. Don't come in faking it. Don't fake it here. Don't fake it at home. God sees our heart. He said, Jeff, what do you mean? Fake words, fake actions, fake service, fake giving. God's not calling for fake. You remember what I just said about food? It comes out. You're going to know. People are going to know. Grace View, I wish I could go and just us have a one-on-one. And I'd have to have the same one-on-one with myself. Is it evident by how you live and how you interact that, man, that girl, that lady, that man, they delight in God. They have great affection for God. They enjoy God, and it just comes out. Do you have that? This is what he's calling you to. If you're sitting there consoling yourself and putting up your shield of, well, Jeff, God makes all of us different ways. Some people are way out there, and they're feeling whatever they're thinking. It's very evident to everybody. And then there's others of us, we're much more reserved. I'm in the more reserved crowd, I promise you. I'm in the more reserved crowd. I am acknowledging that God makes us different. I was sharing this thought with Deanna the other day, and I, was, I literally thought of a lady who's right now sitting to my right in our church here almost every week. There, there's just something about her. It is no doubt about it, she loves the Lord, but I don't know that she's massively expressive. She's like consistent. But if you're sitting there, here's how to say this. I want to say it the right way. Sometimes some of us, partly because of how we're raised, we can get real content that I'm very committed to the Lord. I'm very devoted. I have good theology. I am grateful. I'm just not out there in my emotions. I'm I'm, I'm reserved. Okay, I get it. Here's all I'm going to ask. When you're in a political rally... Do you do the same thing there that you do when you come here and you refuse to sing or you refuse to sing above about a five decimal level? When truth's on the screen and people are praising God and you're just like, I'm just going to pass on the singing. I'm shy. I'm an introvert. Don't console yourself if you do that in God's house and then you go down to the political rally and you're very willing to shout and be heard even when other people are quiet and you start little things, little chants, and like other people are like... Yeah, what there? And they jump in with you, and you're kind of a leader. Or if you go to a ball game, and you shout and scream when they score a touchdown, and you're yelling at the refs, but you come to God's house, and we can't get a holy grunt out of you, something is wrong with your heart. It's wrong with your heart. You ought to ask yourself, no, no, that's just the way I am. I'm just kind of shy and quiet, and this is the way I'm made. Well, be consistent. Because if you're not, if you're crazy over there, willing to be heard, everybody's like, man, she gets real excited at the ball game but can't get anything out of you here, something big time wrong. You ought to be saying, like I've concluded this week, I'm looking at this list. A will determined to glorify God. Going to obey His commandments. Desiring to do acts of work. Appetite to learn of Him. Desire to spend time. Great delight, great affection. You know what I read in that list? I got a big time sin problem. I have big time sin problem. I have issues. You want to know what makes it bad? 
This is the greatest commandment. Your pastor, every day, breaks the greatest commandment. This means to break it is really, really bad. And it's not acceptable. So that brings me to the most important part of our message today. Jeff, I'm guilty. I've been a big old hypocrite. I've been hiding behind my little shield that, oh, I'm, I have affection. It's deep, deep, deep down in there. But I act like a wild person over there in those settings. I can't go watch my kid without yelling at the refs. But bring me in the house of God and you don't get anything. I don't, like, that's me. What's the problem? That's been me. This has been me. I need to own up and say, God, I have a heart problem. So how can I love the Lord? Most important part of the message is the next five things you're going to write. Love springs from more than this, but this is a good start. Number one, you're going to have to have this. You've got to have it. You're not going to be able to love God without it. Number one, a new and regenerated heart. You're going to have to have a new and regenerated heart. You're going to have to have a new heart. You're going to have to have a regenerated heart. Where's this at in the Bible? I'm going to fight temptation to get bogged down in these passages. No, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 3. While you're turning there, quick drink of water. Romans 8. Look at verse 3. How were we able? Everybody in here should be saying, wow, I don't love the Lord like I should. He's calling for this agape and the whole, whole heart, soul, and mind and all of our strength. He's calling for all of that. I've never done that. How can we do it? Romans 8 verse 3. This is only for believers. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Did you catch it? What he's saying is, God has done something that the law, God gave us the law. It's very clear. Do these 248 things. Don't do these 365 things. But it didn't work. We didn't change. But now in believers, God has done what the law could not do. Why? Because the law was weakened by the flesh. In our flesh, we can't do these things. We can't keep the commandments of God. We can't love like we should. So notice in the middle of verse 3, how did he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he, Jesus, condemned sin in the flesh. He bore all of our sins. He died on the cross. God the Father poured his wrath out on Jesus. Now verse 4 tells us why. Verse 3 begins with the what. Middle of verse 3 says how he did it. Jesus on the cross. Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So in other words, we are able to keep these laws and commands of God, but we're not going to be able to do it in the flesh. And just by finishing verse 4, I'm already getting to my next point, so it'll make it shorter. Look at verse 4. In order that the right, why has God done this through Christ? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It is possible. Who us, who walk not according to the flesh. Okay, I gotta try harder. I'm a Christian now. No, but according to the Spirit. You gotta have a brand new heart, and that's what God gives us at salvation. Secondly, how are we going to love? How is this even possible? Galatians chapter 5. Very, very quickly. Galatians wrong one. Galatians 5. Look at verse 22. You know it well. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit... Oh, I'm there too early. Write this thought down. 
How can we love? Love springs forth, number one, from a new and regenerated heart. Number two, it springs forth from God's Spirit controlling us. God's Spirit controlling us. Now Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that He's in my life, really we could say it this way. Everybody with me? The byproduct of God's Holy Spirit living in us, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And it goes on into verse 23. You with me? How do we love? By literally, I know it's a short note, but let me touch on it. Inviting the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, like you should do this right now. Holy Spirit, my mind's starting to think about this and start to think about the clock and start to think about lunch and this, that, and the other. What do you want me to think about? What do you want me to feel? And what do you want me to do? And then give in. Like invite the Holy Spirit. Control me right now. If you'll go through life inviting that, the Holy Spirit will not only put love in you, he'll start boiling love up. It's the only way to love. We're all going to keep breaking the command unless we get a new heart at salvation. And then the Holy Spirit must keep producing the fruit of love. Number three. Love springs from knowing that God loves us. Love springs from knowing that God loves us. How can I love? Well, you better know this. By the way, Grace, do you all know this? God loves you unconditionally. He loves us. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, simply God loves you no matter what. He doesn't love you more when you're good, and he doesn't love you less when you're bad. He cannot love you more than he loves you right now. He, can't lo- he loves you the maximum. He loves you. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. You know what this tells me? It's what I find in, in life. Love is attractive Love is attracting. Love is reactionary. How many times has this happened on on college campuses? Some girl gets told that some guy really, really likes her. And it's like two weeks into the school year. And she hadn't even seen him. She's talked to him, bumped into him, said something. Seen him with her eyes, but he has not really registered yet. But her friends point over to a group of guys over there. And those group of guys just happen to be looking. And the guy that, which one? The one in the, him. And he sees her looking at, and he gets all embarrassed and red. And she's like, he like, oh, that guy's crazy about it. He likes me. And then he turns away. You know what happens? I kind of like him. Yeah, I kind of like him. You're saying he likes me. Dude's crazy about you. I think I like him too. I need to meet him. What's he like? There's something about when somebody, by the way, that happened in 1988, September, in Greenville. I'd met her. She apparently didn't remember meet me. But uh, John saw you're like, yeah, he's, he's not so crazy. You've got to do something. This guy's wearing me out in the dorm. So it happens all the time. Love is attractive. It's attracting. It's react- we love him because if you don't know deeply You say, Jeff, I'm struggling to love. Could it be that you don't realize that God loves you? Knowing he loves you brings about love for him. Quickly, number four. Love springs from knowing God. Not just knowing that God loves us, but knowing God as a person. 
First John chapter 4, look at verse number 8. Anyone who does not love, and some of us are like, yes, that's my problem. I don't love like I should. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Not on your screen, but before that it says, whoever loves, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You know what that tells me? We love God because we know God. Listen to what I'm saying. God is the kind of being that if you know him, you will love him. If we don't love him, it's because we don't know him well enough. And when we get to know him, we've got to, listen, this love has to be anchored in truth. It has to be truth. John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It has to be true. If Deanna were to tell me, oh, I love you. Really? Oh, yeah. I love, I love that you haven't changed a bit since we got married in 91. I love your, your thick blonde hair and your deep blue eyes. And I love that you're six foot two. And I love how you're so mechanically inclined and can fix everything at the house. And your sense of humor is just so such. And just such a great, your, your charm is just off the charts. Everywhere we go, you're the life of the party. I love that about you. <laughs> Who do you love? Because you don't love me. I'm none of those things. We can't go through life. I love this about God and that about God. Is it the truth? You take everything, and even the parts you say, I don't like that, you love him with your whole mind, with all your soul, with all your heart. Agape. Blended. And then the last one is very important. Love springs from an awareness of our sin, an awareness of God's forgiveness. It springs from an awareness of our sin. You're saying, Jeff, I'm like you. I really struggle to love God. Yeah, sometimes here's what, what our problem is. We're not very aware of our sin. Now, this has to be balanced. I want you to look at Luke chapter, and you need to go back and read this. Luke 7, look at verse 47. I think it'll be on the screen. Watch it. You ready? Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Watch the last sentence. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He who who is forgiven little loves little. He who, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Will you give me about a minute and a half to tell you the background here? You ready? A Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. The Pharisee's name is Simon. Jesus goes into his house. They start eating a meal together. The way they eat, their feet are down there and they're kind of reclined. A woman of the city who's a well-known sinner gets in the house, in the Pharisee's house, and she is under such conviction And feels so bad about all of her sin. And she's so grateful for the grace and mercy that just exudes from Jesus. That she ends up down at his feet, bawling, just crying. And her tears are going all over Jesus' feet. And she takes her hair and starts wiping his feet. And she has an alabaster box of expensive ointment. And she breaks the alabaster box and pours the ointment on Jesus' feet. And starts rubbing this expensive, smelly, perfumey ointment on the feet of Jesus. Meanwhile, Simon is over here thinking, not even saying, thinking, if this guy really was a true prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that was, and he wouldn't be letting her do that. Jesus, being a true prophet, being God in the flesh, knows what he's thinking, and he says, Simon, hey, Simon, got a little scenario for you. I'm reading between the lines. I'm going to give an updated version. Ready? There's this money lender, and in our terms, he lends this guy $5,000. He lends this guy $50,000. $5,000, $50,000. It's time to pay up. It is now time to pay or you're going to get in big trouble. Neither one has the money to pay. They neither one can pay. But the money lender is so great and kind and gracious and merciful, he forgives both of them. He forgives the 5000 and the 50000 Jesus asks Simon, Simon, which one of them is going to love him more? 
Well, I suppose the one that is forgiven more. You have well said. Simon, you want to know your problem again? I'm reading between the lines. Here's your problem. I came into your house from the time I got here. You gave me no water to wash my feet. You did not give me a kiss that is their equivalent of a handshake. And you did not put any ointment on my head, any oil on my head. This woman has come in. She has not ceased from the time she's got in here to wash my feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And she's pouring ointment out not on my head but on my feet. You want to know your problem, Simon? Yes, she has sinned a lot more than you. But you think you haven't sinned very much, and that's why you're all stuck up, and that's why you don't love very much. She loves a lot. And in verse number 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. She loves a lot. I am not advising you to go out and wallow in past memories of forgiven sin But if you're here this morning and you read what we put on the other page, what love is called for, and you're like, I'm coming up short in like every point, then it may be that very carefully, very carefully, not in a way that glamorizes or draws you in mentally, that's going to put you in a bad place, but you may need to just from a nice safe distance take a good aerial view and say, look where God saved me from. Because we're really good at looking at other people's sin. We need to go back and say, God saved me, an idolater. Me, a God-hater. Me, a fornicator in my heart. An adulterer in the heart. A murderer in the heart. An angry person in the heart. A liar. God saved me. Then, all of a sudden, Lord, look at all the things you've saved me from. And then our love for the Lord will be in direct proportion of how well we know Him. How well we know our sin. How well we know His love. And how much we know of His forgiveness of all of that sin. Then our love's going to go up. But until then, we're just going to have old, crusty hearts. Love springs from a new heart. Love springs from letting the Holy Spirit work, control. Love springs from knowing, I know you love me. Love springs, when I know you, I love you. And when I'm reminded of my sin and what he's forgiven me of. Matthew 22, very quickly. Number two this morning, God commands us to love others. So this was a bonus. Jesus says, while we're at it, I'm going to go ahead and give you an additional. So look at verse 39. It's one verse. I'm going to be quick. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm very disappointed in myself. I get that. I understand, guys, that I should be going to this further. I'm going to give you two paragraphs. The second one is a little weighty. And that'll be the second, the final Piper quote, pneumonia. It's, it, it's, heaven, it's heavy, but I'll, I'll tell you when. Verse 39, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you catch what's been said? Love God. Number one, love God with everything in you. Let me say it a different way. Grace view. Love God more than you love yourself. And then go love other people as yourself. Love God more than you love yourself, and then love other people down here, second, as yourself. What's implied? Look at it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's implied? That we love ourselves. Now, there's some new psychology running around. It's very faulty, and it says this. Well, not everybody loves themselves. Some people hate themselves. It's not true. Everybody loves themselves. A lot of people are very upset and they don't love their cycle and their bad decisions and their predispositions towards sin and the consequences. We don't love that. None of us do. 
Everybody loves themselves. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's how we know. We all love ourselves as seen in our desire to be happy. We want to be happy. I'll tell you straight up, guys, I want to be happy. I have agape for me. I love me some me. I love me. I am deeply invested in Jeff Bartlett's well-being. How does this come out? Very simple. When I start feeling a little hungry, and often before, I go get me some food. I feed me. I start getting a little thirsty. I make sure I get something to drink. I start feeling a little dirty. I make sure I am cleansed. I don't want to feel shame, so I dress. And I want the right clothes for the right occasion. When I feel danger of any kind, I protect me. If something's about to hit my face, I do that. Something's coming up here, I do that. If it's going to be a really, really hot day, I start making arrangements to get in the air condition. If it's going to be super cold, I protect myself. Thunderstorm breaks out. I take care of me. Danger starts breaking out. I'm going to defend. Protect. Why? I'm invested in my happiness. I love me. And you love you. You are deeply invested in your well-being. And by the way, we don't want the minimum of these. It's important. We don't want the minimum. Food and drink and clothing and cleansing and protection. We want good of it. And then comes along Jesus and says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ouch. That asks this question. Answer it. Do I want and pursue those same things that I have for me for other people with the same vigor that I want them and pursue them for myself? Do I do that for other people? If you're taking notes, write this thought and we'll give a quick verse to back it up. What this passage is teaching is if we truly love someone as ourselves and we know that this person has genuine needs, if we truly love them as ourselves, then our natural spiritual reaction should be to help meet the need. This is what this is calling for. 1 John chapter 3, you've heard this. We could have used James' version of it. We'll hit this one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. It's very practical. But if anyone has this world's goods, that's us, possessions. Listen to the Bible. This is the command of the Lord. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the love, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When we sense, wow, they have a great need. I actually have it. I get it. We're limited. We are limited. We're not unlimited. But when our neighbor, who's whoever comes across our path, Jesus taught us that in this parable of the, great, of the Good Samaritan, they have a need. I have the ability to help meet that need. I should give to meet the need. Now, in a minute, I'm, in a minute, I'm going to have you write portion of Piper's quote. There's a section that's before that, so don't even worry about writing yet. I want you to hear it. You ready? In a moment of brutal honesty, Piper writes the following, quote, the second commandment seems to me to be an overwhelming commandment. <laughs> Did y'all gather that? I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself. I like keeping my stuff. Do I pursue their good things 
their well-being like I pursue mine with as much vigor? If I love them as I love myself, I would. He writes, the second commandment seems to me to be an overwhelming commandment. Here it is. You ready? Not, not your hand out. Not there. He writes, it seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am that other person. I need to read that again. This second commandment seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am the other person. And so literally, what if we went through life? What is it like to be Deanna? What is it like to be Erica? What is it like to be Jonathan? What's it like to be Victor Martinez? What if I, what if I were him? Victor David, Alina. What if I were Alina? What if I take my skin and I put it, I become Krista? He writes, It demands that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am the other person and all the longings that I have for my that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. What if I really went through life with that? Now here's your quote. You're gonna have to go home and chew on it. I'm sorry, time's getting away. He writes, the root of our sinfulness, the root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. I know your brains are wore out. Oh, if I have time to go into that. That struck me. Some of you are writing it. And it's good, it's not on the screen yet because there's more to come. I want you to hear it again. The root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God. That's where it all starts. I'm going to go over here and do this and be happy separate from God. But then he says, it's also our desire to be happy apart from the happiness of others in God. Now here comes the rest. And then I'll have it on the screen. Catch. He writes, pride is the presumption that we can be happy without depending on God as the source of our happiness and without caring if others find their own happiness in God. Now, that's a lot. You're going to need to go home and process that. You ought to read that ten times. Pride is the presumption. We can be happy without depending on God as the source of our happiness. And pride is what? Going through life without caring if others find their happiness in God. That's what the first and second commandments are calling for. Find your happiness and your delight, your joy in God and go through life. How can I be used, God, to help other people find their happiness and joy? Lord, how can you use me to minister to people and to help people and share in their needs in such a way that they know that it is you and it is drawing them ultimately back to you? But pride keeps us from wanting to do that. And that brings us to our last and shortest point. Number three, Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Write this down. I know some of you are still hitting that. It'll be up in a minute. Leave this up for another minute or two. I'm going to go ahead and touch on this third point and get started. Love fulfills all the law. Love fulfills all the law. Here's verse 40 again. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets are depending on these two commands. 
So guys, let me say what this is not saying. This is not Jesus saying, I want you to picture a field full of corn stalks. And there's 613 of them. And these two, you see the two that I just picked? Oh yeah, they're the two that stick up higher. That is not the lesson. You see the word depends? The word depends there means hangs on. It's even translated that way sometimes. All the law and the prophets hangs on these two things. These two commands. In other words, if you'll picture them as two cords, two strands, two bands. Here's what he's saying. These two bands love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your mind, all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, all the law and the prophets are being held and hanging by them. And these two are so strong, so important. They can handle the weight of all the other 611 and all the prophets. It's all hanging on these two things. All the other 611 are tracing their real power and their ultimate source is going back to these two things. The whole thing hangs on these two. Now, I've written a little bit of a confusing paragraph as well. I'm going to hit it quickly. Verse 40 tells me the great, this is a big picture, you ready? The great overarching plan of God in creation is fulfilled when we experience God's love for us in such a way that we respond to his love for us by loving him with everything that is in us and loving others as ourselves. That's the big plan. Let me say it again because I'm going to give you one more sentence. The great overarching plan of God in creation is fulfilled when we experience God's love for us in such a way that we respond by loving God with everything in us and loving each other as ourselves. I've concluded this. That is the essence of what heaven will be. Heaven is not about streets of gold. It's not about mansions and pearly gates. That's nice. I'm telling you, this is the essence of heaven. When we get there, we're going to be basking in the love of God We will love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we will love each other as ourselves. And that will set the tone for all of eternity. That is what heaven will be. Very quickly. You say, Jeff, you got to be, I'm I'm almost done. Romans 13. Let me touch it. Romans 13 is a little bit of a sister to what we just read in Matthew 22. Romans 13, verse 10. Romans 13, 10. Love Remember, love God, love your neighbor. Both, it's ultimately one command, love. Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Paul says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. When you love, you will not do wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus said the whole law and the prophets are hanging on these two things of love. Paul later writes, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Why do we have laws? We have laws because we lack love. We have God's laws because we, God gave us the law to show us what he's like, to show us our sin, and this is what love would look like. We lack love, so we need laws. Do you guys know that if we loved properly, we wouldn't need laws against murder and stealing and adultery from God. We wouldn't need speed limit laws. We may need some wisdom. That's probably a little fast. Go do what you want to do. Oh, if that's a little fast, I'm going to slow down. But you know how we live. 
You think it's too fast. I don't care. Yeah, but the sign over there, I don't care. I'm in a hurry. Guilty. We're all guilty, most of us. Some of you are the ones, if you're not guilty, you're the ones we're speeding around. We're the ones shouting at you because you're in our way. We have laws because we lack love. If we could somehow go through life with full love for God and really loving our, other, our neighbor as ourselves, we wouldn't need laws. So you can go through law. You can go through life with a bunch of laws or you can try to go through life ultimately like, so here, here's your two choices. I've got to memorize these 613 things. I've got to do these 613. I've got to do them, got to do them, got to do them. What are they again? Oh, I think I forgot number 583. What? Or you can go through life. Am I loving God? Am I loving my neighbor? You do those two things, you will be fulfilling the law. You won't have a problem. And then I promise my last thought is 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to die, deep dive. Flip over there. You're going to need to finish. This is the last one. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Very, very quickly. This shows us the place of love. It's the command of God. It's the first and the second command is love. Here it comes. You ready? 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, if, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Somebody give me another word for tongues. If I speak in the languages of men. Picture it. What if someone knew every language of every tribe, nation, every, every, every language? Anywhere. You take them anywhere. They just start firing off like, that. how in the world? I just have a gift. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. This person can talk to the angels. But have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Very impressive. But at the end of the day, no love, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. Paul writes, And if I have prophetic powers. You got it? I'm talking about, yes, able to predict the future. But I'm talking about giving the most timely messages. The most authoritative power field. I mean preaching. Verse 2. If, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Hypothetical, just pretend, what if? This person knows all about the mystery of the Jew-Gentile church, the mystery of the godliness in Christ, the mystery of the rapture. He knows all the mystery of all these things. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Here's a big one. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. This person has such strong faith. That when they pray, they believe, and mountains are moved as a result of their prayers. You're like, that would be awesome. He says, but if I have that and I don't have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, if that's not big enough, these are great things. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, what happened to all your stuff? I gave it away to the poor. Well, what do you have left? I'm now poor. What? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I will die for the cause of Christ because I'm committed. But he says, but if I do that, but have not love, I gain nothing. They're impressed. All those people were served, but it didn't gain me anything. Now verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Now, right now, we have faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. The Bible gives clear ranking, Grace View, clear ranking. So I want to be transparent. The Bible in 1, Timothy, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, talks about faith, and it says, Faith is more precious than this. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.7. Does anybody remember? The trying of your faith being more precious than of this, though it be tried by fire. Gold. Everybody listen. The Bible says gold. You're like, I love me some gold. I love gold. It's valuable. It's precious. The Bible says faith is more precious, much more precious than gold. You get to go to heaven because you have faith. The only way you get saved is by faith. Faith is key. Gold, faith. But the same Bible says love greater than faith. Love is at the very top. Love is supreme. I didn't make those rules. Here's what that means. Here's a person who has great faith and pretty good love. And over here's a person that has great love and pretty good faith. This person's prayers are impressive and they get answered. And man, they endure in the hardest of times because they have great faith and pretty good love. This person's faith is not as strong as that one. They don't have prayer life like that one. But boy, they just love and serve people. God says they win. They have the better thing. Greater love beats great faith. The power to preach and teach and go anywhere in the Bible. What does that mean? It means fire hydrant. How do they know all that? That's impressive. Love is more impressive than all of those things. So last week I go to a funeral of Andrew Swift, 36 years old. Some of y'all knew him. Andrew was not a theologian. Andrew was not a great orator. But as I sat there for two hours and heard some songs and testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony, I tell you what. Dude won. Old Swifty won. Here's why. They just all kept saying the same thing. He loved God. He loved his family. He loved his wife. He loved his kids. He loved people. He'd jump in and do for you. He just loves. Sometimes people will say, Jeff, I just appreciate how you that and how that and that. You know what I'm sitting there for two hours thinking? This 36-year-old guy has kicked my rear end. He loves a lot more than I do. God, may I attain to where he's at before I die. Man, 15 years my junior, God, will you please let me get to where he's at. He was great at the best thing, the most important thing. He won. Where are you at? See, when I was a kid, I I was impressed by talented people. I was really impressed. I'd pay money to go watch them. Singers, wow, what would that be like? I'm so envious, so impressed. Athletes especially basketball, football. Wow, that is so impressive. Well, I'm 51 now. I still find them kind of impressive. The people that I want to be like and the people that impress me most are those who love the most, and you may not even know their name. I just look at them like, God, I'm telling you, folks, I'm telling you, there are people in this church going to be way ahead of me. I got some catching up to do. I got to love the Lord more, and I got to love people more. I've got work to do. Do I have a regenerated heart? Yes. The Holy Spirit has to start being in more of control. I've got to remember that God loves me no matter what. I need to know the Lord more than I do. And I've got to remember, Jeff, I'm having a hard time forgiving this person. They did me wrong. They've acknowledged it. They've begged me. But I'm just kind of not willing to do it. Yeah, we've got to come more aware of our own sin. Then, when we realize His forgiveness, then we can and will forgive. We'll let it go. 
I got work to do. Kind of tired of breaking the great commandment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, I'll pray. Got to ask these questions. Do you love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind? Do you? You say, Jeff, wow, you just admitted, I know. That's why I said those five points of how we can love and what makes love spring forth. They're so key. We've got to keep going back to them. We've got to keep checking our life. Can I ask a different way? Really, I'm begging you to focus. I'm going to be brief, I'm telling you, but I want you to really let this hit you. Yes or no? It's a yes or no. If the answer is yes, then just be honest about it. It's okay. You'd be lying if you said otherwise. Here's the question. Have you, you ever loved God more than you do right now in this season of your life? Do you love Him more now in this season than you ever have? Or is the honest answer, Jeff, there was a time in my life where I loved Him more than I do right now. If you cannot say, I love Him more right now than I ever have before, then I want to ask you, what is hindering your love? Is there, just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, put your finger on it. Is there a specific sin that is robbing and hindering my love? Or is there affection and love for lesser things? I'm so caught up in lesser things. I don't love God like I did when I was in my 20s or my 30s or my 40s or my 50s. Yes or no? Do you love Him more now than you ever have? This season of your life, the thought hit me about three weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and we had our prayer time. How many churches in Anderson County have even half of their Christians, half of their true Christians, who could answer that with a yes? How many churches have even half their people who could honestly say, I love the Lord right now more than I ever have? I doubt it's very many. I dare say most churches have Christians all over that are like, it was another time of life. I've grown kind of cold. I've kind of got used to it. I've plateaued. That ought not be. Please, you, I'm asking you, will you pray for our church to get into a season where, what would it be like to go to a church that the majority of the people love God more right now than they ever have before? That would be, that would be different. That would be exciting. Does your life exhibit passion for other things? And no excitement for God is that okay no it's not we got to acknowledge I got a problem I've been hiding behind a shield of a personality not saying fake it don't fake it ask God to give you more love and then lastly who's the last person you've expressed your love to your neighbor who's the last person God, would you ask this last question in a way that it needs to hit whoever it needs to hit? I'm going to ask it. Is there anyone you struggle to love? Is there anyone you struggle to love? If so, take that piece of paper home and go look at those five dots. Have I have a regenerated heart? Am I letting the Holy Spirit control me? Do I know that God loves me no matter what? That frees me to love. Do I know God? And am I aware of what great forgiveness He's done for me? That's where the power to love comes from.
Would you stand with me this morning? Would you stand this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Father, this had some technical things. It was long. It was heavy. God, I pray for grace for you. That we're going to just love you with our will. A determined, committed, lifelong love. Even when the feelings aren't there. But God, I pray that you will help us cause our love to abound. God, we have love. We have it. The Holy Spirit's poured it in our hearts. I I pray, Lord, that you would let that love abound more and more. I pray that you would revive Grace Fuse love. May we never leave our first love. May we get back to every day is the first love day. I pray that for this congregation, this people, those viewing online. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go love somebody this week.